Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello. Hello. I said that so cheerfully. This is not necessarily a cheerful episode. I'm Sadie, and this is More Than Amused Podcast. Hello, I'm Stani. I'm sorry for the awkward way that I <laughs> no, started good. that. We're talking about purity culture today. And like over-sexualization of women in media. And to prepare for this episode, we chose books and neither of us really liked the books that we both read in preparation for it. No, these are literally <laughs> things that I've avoided my entire life. Yeah. Because I didn't want to associate with them at all. <laughs> and then we're like, oh, let's base an entire episode around it. Let's oh. see how that goes. So before yeah. we even dive into the full on topic, trigger warnings, because we're going to be talking about women's sexuality and also depression, suicide with the books that we are discussing. Yeah. And just like also potentially like just other heavy topics surrounding. Yeah. So we'll just tell you the three books we're covering and, and then I feel True. like you'll know what the trigger warnings are. <laughs> we're talking about The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. So obviously adultery, yes. toxic Christianity. We're also talking about Lolita by Vladimir Nobokov, I think is how you say his last name. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. Eugenides? Yes. I don't know how I'm you say his last name. I'm entirely sure. I really yeah. I've never actually said it out loud. So those are the three. Obviously, mm-hmm. these are three books that have been a part of, I feel like, culture for so yeah. long and They even have a whole aesthetic that's associated with them that's really weird. Yeah, especially Lolita. (laughs) Yeah, which we'll talk about a lot because it's strange what we've done with Mm -hmm. these. And the reason we want to talk about these books is because I feel like the authors are actually very aware of what they were discussing. And I feel like they're Mm -hmm. critical of the things that they discuss in it. And so they do a good job about it. But they are written by men. And I feel like all three of them are very misinterpreted, especially Lolita and the Virgin Suicides. I think so. My job in preparation for this episode was to read The Virgin Suicides. And I personally found the book to be triggering mainly because I started reading it I think at the beginning of the week and at the end of that week I was just like oh my gosh I have been depressed things resurfaced that I was just I could not figure out I'm like what where is this coming from then I remembered I started reading The Virgin Suicides and something I've learned about me is that if I consume any media that has to do with teenage girls being that depressed whoo it is a trigger point for me. And so I think that's the reason why we're recording this episode on a Saturday evening. And I think I've just been like, I don't want to record this episode. <laughs> I do. I think this is an important thing to talk about. And like with us having this podcast, it's about time in a way that like we yeah. touch on this subject. It's a long time coming. And it's something I so it's very personal to me, obviously. And like my own life experiences, a lot of these concepts. But yeah, I don't really know what my point was with that but here we are now we're ready to talk about it yeah no there's also a reason that we roped them in together Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like okay we cover it and then we don't touch on and then we don't have to talk about it ever again (laughs) because yeah i like i will say all of them are hard in various ways neither of us read the scarlet letter it's long Major kudos to anyone who actually has read the whole thing. Yeah. I was going to originally, and then I realized it literally, I think the audiobook was like 20 hours or something. Oh, gross. And I was just like, Ugh. I did pick up a copy of it from Barnes & Noble, and I actually only read the introduction, and the introduction was done by a woman, of, and I can't remember her name, but I thought it was really funny because her whole like beginning point was, I used to think this book was horribly boring, and actually... Actually, now reading it as an adult, I've actually grown to enjoy it. So maybe one day. I do have it on my shelf now. Yeah. We'll see if it actually becomes read. I think I read like one or two chapters of it. And I didn't think it was boring. It was definitely dry. But I did end up reading about half of Lolita. (laughs) For audio listeners, you missed the face I just pulled. I don't even know how to explain it's disgusting and yeah also 
really dry. And I ended up skimming over entire paragraphs because anyway, we can talk more when I talk about it specifically. But it's a shorter book, but it's a very like unreliable, self-important narrator because it's from the point of view of the pedophile. And so it makes it hard because he'll go into these long justifications for his behavior or these long flowery anecdotes about romanticizing different things. And then it's more the context where you have to pick up what's actually happening. Uh, or I mean, not, yeah, like in between the lines. So I will recommend, I actually ended up buying the Kindle version of the annotated Lolita. Oh. And someone went through, it's by Alfred Apfel Jr., I think is the one who did it. They have an entire introduction into who Vladimir Nobokov is. And then there's a whole other section where they basically rewrote the entire book and added in links, hyperlinks to a bunch of stuff. Obviously, that makes it a lot harder to get through it because it's longer. But I will say it ended up raising a lot more questions for me where I'm like, oh, okay, I think about half of what the narrator is telling you in the book is complete lies. Oh. But then that makes it harder because then it's, he's so unreliable. That's the point of the story. But anyway, glad we was never assigned it in high school. I think it would have really done some damage to my adolescent I brain. I can't <laughs> imagine yet where we're from, Utah. <laughs> Them assigning Lolita. Should we dive in? Yeah. Let's do it. We're procrastinating. We are. <laughs> All right. Before we begin in talking about you know, the works of literature, I figured we would start by just quickly defining purity culture if you mm -hmm. are unfamiliar with it. But it's essentially a culture or a piece of I don't know if piece of doctrine is even the right way of saying it within generally Christianity that emphasize subjective individual purity. Mm -hmm. generally mostly associated with female chastity, I would dare say. And it has a strong emphasis on abstinence before marriage. Even like dating can be discouraged because it can lead to premarital sex. Also layered into purity culture is like women and girls are told to cover up and dress modestly to avoid arousing sexual urges in men and boys. It very emphasizes traditional gender roles and all of those things. Yeah. So there's a very basic definition, at least, of what that is. Definitely. I also wanted to shout out, there's a book that I want to read eventually. I'm going to have to wait a while after this week. <laughs> like Some things are a bit too fresh still. Yeah. <laughs> it's called The Purity Myth, How America's Obsession with Virginity is Hurting Young Women. It was written in 2009 by the author Jessica Valenti. And it just talks about, like, how the United States as a country is obsessed with the idea of virginity and how yeah. that bleeds into everything from like high school dress codes to then you have sex education being what it is, which is abysmal. <laughs> and, yeah. and then you also have like crazy situations where it leads to the girls gone wild infomercials that used to be a huge thing. And then the over-sexualization of women in media. And that all comes from purity culture. Like, I think a lot of the times, like, people like to view it as, oh, there's purity culture and then there's an obsession with sex and they're not connected. When I would say that actually purity culture connected. is the reason why our society is obsessed with sex. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it just talks about how girls and women are overly valued for their sexuality and then there's this huge damaging emphasis on virginity that leaks into everything when if you think about it there's actually not like a concrete definition of virginity like medical mm. books don't even have like full definitions of what that means and having your hymen be intact doesn't necessarily isn't... mean oh my gosh. anything and there's so many different ways to look at stuff that it's just like Virginity basically doesn't exist, and it's weird how, like, overly emphasized it is. It is crazy how much, I don't know. I'm trying to decide, I'm like, how personal are we getting <laughs> on today's episode? Because I have a lot of personal things one could say about my feelings and experiences and also the side effects, like the very real side effects emotionally that are <laughs> damaging, but... The point is, it's very interesting, all the like preconceived notions that you have or I had about like the first time 
Yeah. Like even like popping a cherry, like the hymen, like all of those things. And I was like, wait, that didn't happen. It's just like you said, it's not, it's not, I don't know. I think that's a very great point to bring up. Like the whole, yeah. it's not even a medical thing, actually. No, it's not. There's real. no concrete rules of this is what happens. Yeah. And that's what makes like a lot of situations within it so complicated and weird is just because it, it's a thing that we've made up as a society. Yeah. In order to put like a weird, almost in some ways, like, and in the past, like a cash value on different women. Yeah. And their value. And that's not even getting into the hypocrisy of like men never having any of those expectations or like any physical ideal of what it means to be a virgin. A virgin. Yeah. And even to just the levels of education that goes into one gender and the other and yeah (laughs) the amount that as a woman you don't even know about your own body most often i know i feel like that could be a whole other podcast you could talk about how harmful abstinence only education is Mm -hmm. and that it leads to problems later when people get into the marriage bedroom and they have no idea what to do or just a lot of issues and like women's health care we've talked about a lot where they have no idea what's going on or women's pleasure where like men don't know what they're doing and women don't even know what that (laughs) would look like too and then it leads to a lot of unsatisfactory feelings within a lot of marriages that no one knows how to fix because they don't know how to talk about it because it's a really hard thing to talk about that i think it takes practice talking about things that are I mean and not delicate even in a toxic way but they are just they're private things that is not always open for the world to discuss they're intimate private moments and so knowing even how to talk that about those things and bring it up that can be very difficult and a learning curve yeah I will say like when you treat sex like a dirty thing an entire child's life and then expect them to enjoy it later once they're married you have some very wild expectations (laughs) because you can't pin that kind of thing that's That's a lot of undoing and i think that's really harmful and then also i will say if you expect schools to not talk about sex at all if you really fully believe that there should be abstinence only education in school then that puts all of the entirety of the responsibility for education on the parents and if and they aren't willing to discuss it, yeah. then then you better let the school do it. And that's what I'll say is that, like someone's got to cover it. And if you're mm-hmm. not willing to, then you might as well leave it up to educators because interesting. <laughs> someone's got to talk about it. You can't just let everyone leave it alone and hope that people figure it out on their own. It doesn't work like that. So no. that's kind of my opinion. I, that, you know, that is that's the two cents that I can support and agree yeah. with. All right, let's start off, I think, with the lesser of evil here. And let's talk about yes. the Scarlet Letter. And you know what? I think Nathaniel Hawthorne got critiques right. That's another thing I do want to point out. Is like, yes, we are like all these books, like you mentioned, they're all by men. But you also mentioned they're obviously critiquing yeah. these systems and showing the negative side of purity culture and things like that. Yeah, the issue that comes with these books is the way that society has interpreted them, not the initial mm. interpretations of the authors. Because okay, I actually cool. feel like what they were trying to do was good. Yeah. But I feel like they were so misconstrued that the themes that actually come from it are completely different. If you look up like the Scarlet Letters, I mean, themes like one of them is like guilt. And I don't oh, yeah. think that should be it. That's not the main point. Sure, it no. explores feelings of guilt, but like... yeah. But that shouldn't be, like, the main theme of the novel. Like, the idea behind the novel isn't don't have adultery or you'll be ostracized or don't commit adultery or you'll be ostracized. That's not the point of the book. And if you, reader, are unfamiliar with The Scarlet Letter, a reader, listener, whatever, <laughs> The Scarlet Letter is a work of historical fiction. It was actually originally published in 1850, so it's old, mm-hmm. but it's set in a Puritan Massachusetts Bay Colony during the years of 1642 to 1649, and the novel tells a story of Hester Prynne, who conceives a daughter with a man to whom she is not married and then struggles to create a new life of repentance and dignity. And as punishment for her infidelity, adultery, she must wear a scarlet letter A for adultery. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it 
has a number of religious and historical themes and allusions. It explores themes of legalism, sin, guilt, but also yeah. then like exposing the double standards between how men and women are perceived in sexual deviances a lot of the time. Yes. What's like really interesting about this book is mm-hmm. that so everyone knows she's committed adultery because they know that her husband was sent ahead to America and never arrived in Boston. And so they think he's been lost at sea. But then she gives birth to this child and they know it's not his. But then she won't tell anyone who the father of the child is. And so she's getting publicly shamed for something that, like, they know she did, but then there's no blame paced upon the man. But her husband hasn't been there for years. Divorce didn't really exist at the time. She probably even thought he was dead. I don't know. There's just some interesting things about that where they're like, you had a baby and your husband's not here, so obviously you committed adultery. Yeah, but then that's like the only context they have because she won't say anything else. Interesting. Yeah. Another interesting parallel that I saw someone like bring up with Scarlet Letter is like the original story of Adam and Eve, Mm. which is another, I think, is maybe the, I don't know, like the starting point here for a lot of maybe purity culture arguments where it's like Eve is the one who does the original sin and brings Adam along with her. Mm -hmm. And that is the start of original sin and everything. So I thought that was like an interesting kind of parallel of how the results of both are expulsion and suffering. But then it's like the woman who is made to take the blame for that. I don't know. I thought that was an interesting parallel. By the way, don't agree with don't yeah, believe in original sin. So yeah. just laying that out there. <laughs> yeah. This isn't me being like, yeah, and duh. No, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's really interesting. I think one of the most crazy plot twists of The Scarlet Letter is that the man that she committed adultery with turns out to be the town's minister, <gasps> which then, of course, everyone finds out. I'm a little, like, iffy on what exactly the ending is. It gets crazy for a little while. I don't really know the details of the story either beyond just the main things. Yeah, he ends up dying, and then she, like, leaves for a little while with her daughter to try and live a new life, but then ends up returning Mm -hmm. to stay in her house and live out her life. And then they bury her with the minister and say that, oh, we were too hard on her. Yeah, like in the end, the town realizes that they were played at fault. I feel like another interesting thing about this book, too, is how common it is to read it in like high school or even, I don't know, middle school, but like high school English classes. So I think a lot of the time this is like a first introduction to the double standards of this purity culture. So obviously it's a very important book for that reason. And it should be like interpreted better than it is. I actually love, so a lot of you may not know, Easy A, the movie, is based on the plot of The Scarlet Letter. That's why they read it in her class. Yeah, and Mm. they, she wears the A on her clothes and draws a lot of parallels between her and Hester Prynne. And Mm -hmm. I think they do a really good job of expressing what the main theme of the book is supposed to be. Because in the book, obviously, like, Hester is guilty. She did commit adultery. In the movie, Olive didn't do (laughs) anything. Yeah. She more, just said that she did or yeah. she let the rumors happen. Yeah, she just let things be said about her without denying them. Kind of the interesting part of that is that I feel like the movie is able to show, because I was thinking about it yesterday and I was like, it's lame that they did that because the point of the book is that she was guilty and then society's perception of her was wrong. And mm-hmm. so it's not Olive's innocence that makes society's perception of her wrong. Like, True. I no, that's think a really good point. What they're trying to teach by the end is be like, all of you are stupid because you assumed things and attacked me with no founding when there was nothing to attack me for. And that even just the rumor and the thought of it being true was enough. Yeah. And even like when you notice at the end, like even the minister tuned into the webcast where Mm -hmm. she said she was going to have sex on screen. And so it's showing that like none of them are as good as they pretend that they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the main lesson of the Scarlet Letter is that like everyone's flawed. Everyone has problems. 
is my religious upbringing. You think of the story of the woman caught in adultery and then the Bible says, like, he among you who hasn't sinned, like, you cast the first cast stone. The first stone. Yeah. And none of them can because, like, we're all messed mm-hmm. up. And yeah. some people's sins are just more visible than others. And so Hester gets ostracized and even thrown in prison for something when it's like everyone technically has done something. Has something. That society would be mad about. And then also thinking of the idea of the minister, the man that they held in high esteem in this puritanical society was also at fault. And Mm. yeah, like he didn't bear the brunt of anything that happened. So I don't know. I think like a lot of the times the idea of that gets lost where it's like he's critiquing the society that she grew up in and that she's surrounded by. And that is judging her, not the woman herself. Yeah, I agree. And another thing, too, with EZA that I wanted to bring up, I rewatched it this week. It was a great palate cleanser. Agreed. Uh, I watched it right after I watched Lolita, and it was there so we nice. Go. That is nice. <laughs> but the difference of as the sexual rumors continue to grow about this main character, Olive, her character gets more and more isolated from the rest of the world, whereas the male counterparts to these rumors, their lives are becoming better yeah. because first off, it's this is another added like point of the movie where it's like a character who is trying to prove that he's not gay so that he stops being bullied and being like the target. And so they pretend to have sex or actually they're like at a party and they pretend to go into a room together and they're just Mm -hmm. making noises and goofing off, but then come out making everyone think that they had sex and his life gets better. He stops being the target. She stays becomes isolated there's another guy who's well after everyone found this out i started getting dates and then she's more and more isolated i think his line is even do you know how many girls i've hooked up with once they found out i hooked up with you yeah and then she says the girls are almost as stupid as boys and he's yeah they are and he's (laughs) excited about that no (laughs) that is the exact moment and that exact scene that I was like oh my gosh we have to talk about this because that's something that definitely mirrored my adolescence experience is that oftentimes the women you know it takes two people to do a sexual act together yeah and the men it's like almost applauded oh my gosh like you go man and then those same men that are or same boys I guess who are applauding their peers are also shunning the woman and calling her a slut and degrading her for doing those things and it's just really gross and it is i think watching people behave and respond that way it was um life it was altering (laughs) yeah no that's a good thing to think about too because hester prin like the a of course is a symbol of it but also like Mm -hmm. her pregnancy that's the only thing that gives away her her sin like her adultery Without the baby, no one would know. No one would know. And that's why the man's able to get away with it while she's not because she has the physical manifestation of what happened, whereas Mm -hmm. he doesn't. Like, men can walk away from things like that. No consequences. (laughs) And pregnancy, that's something that women have to bear the burden of alone. And that ends up calling her out. And they literally force her to wear an A on her clothes until the end of her days. Which notably in the black and white movie is the only thing that's in color, I think, is the red A. Yeah, is the red A. Really make it stand out. Yeah. Yeah. Can't talk about the Scarlet Letter and not talk about Easy A. But (laughs) anything else or would you like to talk about Lolita? This will kind of come into play with all of them. I just think it's really cool that I feel like each novel is a critique of how sexuality is viewed within their time period in a perfect way. Mm Because Nathaniel Hawthorne's the most removed. He wrote his book in 1850 which is forever ago but it is set in the mid 1600s so it's quite a gap of time but society probably hadn't changed that much from overtly religious from like the 1600s to 1850 so i think it's really interesting how these kind of show a time capsule of how women are viewed throughout each time period and how it like doesn't change and also how it changes true at each one so that's something that's interesting okay I don't want to talk about this book. And yet I think it's so important. So that's why it's in here. And it was a last minute edition because I was dragging my feet on this one. Yeah, it's just horrible. Okay, so Lolita 
by Vladimir Nobokov was written in 1955, and it's set in the same time period. It's set in the a little bit behind that, so 1940s to 50s. And the whole premise of the book is there's this guy. He moves into a house with a widow and her daughter, and he becomes obsessed immediately, I'll say, on like first glance with the woman's daughter, who, mind you, is... 12 i think like Mm -hmm. 12 or 13 but he thinks that she looks exactly like his childhood love named annabelle oh and so he like gets obsessed with her before it reaches that point though there's actually like quite a few chapters where he goes through his obsession with younger women or younger looking women from a really early age and like his first wife and how, like, once she lost her girlish attitude, he, like, lost interest in her. And then, like, oh. later throughout the book, it actually calls back to different things where he, like, talks about how he would manipulate her and, like, how abusive he was. That, like, it didn't mention any of that when he talked about it the first time. But it's written in, like, a diary kind of fashion or, like, a memoir from the point of view of this man. And his name is Humbert, I think. Okay. Yeah, Humbert Humbert. Why would you ever do that to your poor kid? He seems deserving of a name like that, though, so it's fine. Yeah. The original manuscript was entitled Lolita, or The Confession of a White Widowed Male. And it was supposedly to be from, like, the author's lawyer. So, like, the author wrote it in jail while awaiting trial. Not for what you think. And And then ended up having his lawyer publish the novel for him. And the idea was that the novel would become a favorite in psychiatric circles as well as encourage parents to raise better children in a better world. Of course, putting the blame on the kids. That's the idea um, that Humbert has for the novel, not what Nobuko intended. Got it. Um, Okay, that makes sense. So basically, he's a boarder in the house. So he falls in love with the little girl. He spends like all of his days basically just like watching her. Mm -hmm. And making all of these flowery descriptions of everything about her from, like, her unwashed hair to, like, her rumpled socks. Like, all these weird things. And then the mother is, like, falling in love with him. And so she sends her daughter, Dolores. Mind you, Lolita is not the girl's name. Her name is Dolores. Her mom calls her Lo. And her friends call her Dolly. He ends up nicknaming her Lolita. And that's what he refers to her as for the entirety of the novel. So her mother sends her off to camp and then they get married and he marries her only so that he can be the father of Lolita. He literally talks about how he has to imagine the fact that his wife is the older version of Lolita in order to even show her any love and affection. Okay. Yeah. While they're on, like, their honeymoon or whatever, he hears that she has plans in order to send Lolita to boarding school. It's very notable that the mom, like, freaking hates her daughter. And I don't know if that's, like, an unreliable narrator thing, like, if that's how he percepted her or Or if if that's actually how she felt. But she, like, talks about her in such a disdainful way and it, like, drives him nuts. But anyway, she says she's going to send Lolita to boarding school. And so he toys around with the idea of killing her. (laughs) But then doesn't. And she finds his diary, learns that he hates her but loves his daughter, confronts him. He denies everything. She says she's leaving him, storms out of the house, and then she dies in a car accident. That's fishy first. Yeah, that is dramatic. (laughs) Especially if we're dealing with an unreliable narrator Yeah. Didn't even think about it initially. I was like, wow, like what a coincidence. Like, I guess she was emotional. But then what happens after, I was like, oh, I think he killed her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because he basically goes to summer camp, picks up Lolita, and then takes her on a road trip across the United States. And they never return back to her home. That's a life so. on the run, if you ask me. So obviously, a lot of stuff ends up happening. Lolita ends up running away from him towards the end. And she goes off with this guy named like Quilty who ends up to be like a recurring character that when you look back he's throughout the whole thing like he was like stalking them the whole way and he tries to recruit Lolita to be in a child pornography film and she turns him down and so then she runs away 
and he finds her married and poor and pregnant at only 17 years old with a husband. She'd written him a letter and asked for money because they're trying to move to Alaska and they're broke. And he tries to get her to run away with him and leave her husband and come with him. And he, she refuses. And so he gives her $4,000, which is a lot of money, <laughs> and then leaves. And then he tracks down Quilty, the guy who tried to recruit her, mm -hmm. and shoots him, killing him where he's arrested and put in jail. And then after Lolita dies in childbirth, the novel is published. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. A really happy story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's like a few kind of points I wanted to bring up. First off was like the fact that the mother hates her daughter. He mentions multiple times that like the mother was never suspicious of his affections for the daughter, but rather the daughter's affections for him. So she was like uh. jealous of how much attention Lolita showed Humbert. And then he said that she had no idea how he felt about Lolita, which was interesting. And he even mentions mm -hmm. multiple times that he made a point of, like, never mentioning or talking about Lolita, really, in order to, like, avoid any detection. And suspicion and stuff. Yeah. Okay. He also, he goes on these long spiels trying to justify his pedophilia with being, like... For the longest time in society, women were married off at age 12. And, mm -hmm. and the best love matches were made between people who are usually 10 or 20 years the senior of their young bride. And But he was like, sometimes 30 or 40 or even a 90-year gap in one point. Like, you can tell he's done so much research on this because he, he knows it's wrong, it. but he's trying to justify it. And yeah. then he also goes in depth about these whole ideas and plans he has. This is where it gets really messed up. Where he's going to, like, drug Lolita so that he can, like, take advantage of her without her knowing because then he won't have ruined her. Oh, dear. Okay. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Because he, like, he wants to keep her innocent because that's what attracts him to her. But then mm. he also wants her. It's so screwed up. Like, obviously, right? But then after he takes Lolita away from camp and they go and stay in a hotel, they end up sharing a bed because there's not any cots, whatever. Who knows if that was actually even the truth. That's what he says. Mm -hmm. And then he said that Lolita seduced him. He goes on like this whole thing about how she told him about a game that she would play at camp with one of the boys and then basically has sex with him to show him what she did oh. with the boy at camp. And then he's, oh, what do you know? I'm not even the one who ruined her. I didn't even take her virginity. It was already gone. So therefore, I'm not at fault. I'm not as bad of a guy. Afterwards, he gets like really possessive of her and every secret she tries to keep from him, he like gets angry about and like yells at her about. And mm. it's also worth noting that like he mentions multiple times how adult women find him attractive and so that's how he knows he's able to get away with things because he like resembles a movie star oh and then what makes it even worse is that so you hear about the fact that like you have her stepfather essentially who's manipulating her into the sexual relationship then you have the boy at camp that was like a couple of years older i think like 17 or something mm -hmm. and she was only 13 at the time that takes advantage of her at camp then you find out that this guy named, like, Claire Quilty, he was, like, mentioned throughout the entire novel. And I feel like the movie did a really good job of showing this, that, like, he literally was, like, stalking them along the entire mm -hmm. path. That he's this older gentleman who's only a little bit younger than Humbert, who is also obsessed with her, and she had a childhood crush on him, and he's a playwright. And he literally follows her the entire way and then ends up convincing her to run away with him and leave Humbert. And so then Humbert tries to convince himself that, like, Quilty is the real pedophile because, like, he wanted to film her. Whereas Humbert's not that much better because he, like, was manipulating and grooming her. So mm -hmm. it's like this whole battle of who's more evil. And yeah, it's a lot. I understand why it's important. I feel like it shows a lot of the justification that people will do for mm. things like that. But also just it's a perfect example of the male gaze. Like, at one point, yeah. 
he's asking her about her friends and he manages to name off every single kid that lived in their neighborhood. And then Dolores or Lolita is like, how do you know all of their names? And he just says, and then I explained. And then we continued. So you don't even hear his explanation. But then he'll make like Mm. other notices of stuff where he'll be like, oh, we went over to visit this couple and they had a beautiful painting of a Girl Scout. And he describes every detail of the painting. And then he's, and then the evening was over and we went home. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So you can tell where like his obsession lies and what he's preoccupied with. Mm -hmm. But then like he thinks that he's just writing a story about an evening out with friends when in reality he's told on himself. Yeah. And so I think. He doesn't realize he's telling on himself. Yeah. So that's where the like unreliable narrator and I think the annotated version comes in handy is that you're able to pick up a lot on more of those nuances of the moments when he's telling on himself Mm -hmm. and the fact that he tries to treat the whole thing with her like a scientific experiment. He's a professor and a lot of the times he'll reference her as like a specimen that he's like studying in order to justify it as if it's just like him observing nature Yeah. You know, as like a completely unbiased scientist, where in Mm. reality, like he is a pedophile who's justifying his attraction for a young woman. So, (laughs) yeah, there's so much more I could say. There's like a whole, obviously, like videos, dissertations on this novel and what the meanings of it all are. One thing I did want to talk about, though, is how romanticized this book has become in such Mm -hmm. a weird way. There's, like, whole clothing aesthetics surrounding it where, like, people try to look younger and call it, like, the Lolita aesthetic. There's, like, Lana Del Rey songs. Yeah. (laughs) I I love Lana, but, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The movie, I watched the one from the 60s. Yeah, the 1962 film. But there is a 1997 film directed by Adrian Lin. That a lot of people like because it's so beautifully filmed. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of dynamic shots with the heart-shaped sunglasses, the sucker yeah. in the mouth, like the things that people associate with the Lolita aesthetic. I did read that that one a lot of people like more because it doesn't skip over a lot of the explicit content of the book. And not in a bad way, but just that it doesn't try to hide anything. Whereas the 1962 yeah. one, you do have to infer some things because it was released in 1962. So they weren't mm-hmm. allowed to show exactly or explain exactly what was happening. Mm-hmm. But it's just weird how romanticized this book is. <laughs> and no, then yeah. a lot of the times people, I think it's the coquette aesthetic. They like use mm-hmm. Lolita and the Virgin Suicides as these like staples of what you should have in your library in order to emphasize that idea of and sylvia plath and like everything yeah. mm-hmm. and it i just say it's like the sad girl aesthetic yeah it, that's not the book to base your personality <laughs> yeah it's and it's come with a lot of weird things too there's been two books i also wanted to mention so there was one that's been written called the real lolita and it talks about how there was actually a criminal case that happened right around the time of this book being written that they think Nobukov ended up taking a lot of stuff from where this guy kidnapped a young girl and took her on a road trip across the United States and manipulated her into a relationship with him. And so a lot of people think that was the basis for the story. There also, most recently in 2021, there was a memoir written by Alison Wood called Being Lolita. And she talks about how her English teacher used the reading assignment of the book in school in order to groom and then sexually assault her by framing the entire thing as a romance Mm. and then leading her into an abusive relationship. And then she said it wasn't until later in college reading the book again she was able to actually see what had been done to her. So I would definitely say it's probably one of the most misinterpreted novels of all time. Because, (laughs) yeah, like, Nobukov intended it to be a criticism of the main character, and it ends up being turned into this weird romanticization of the young girl Mm -hmm. that he's trying to critique the narrator for romanticizing. Yeah. It's just weird. And even the movies, they make her out to be, like, this beautiful, stunning, mature girl, when in the book he describes her so many times as, like, homely, 
unbathed, like mm-hmm. sarcastic and like bad behavior. Like she's not, she's a girl who was like ignored by her mother, manipulated by everyone around her, and then ended up having this tragic ending. There's nothing romantic about that. It is sad. It is the sad yeah. reality of a young girl in the 40s and 50s in the United States. So it's just weird that it's turned into this romanticization of a young character in a relationship yeah. with an older man. That's not what it was. No, it's not. Yeah. And I think it's like very sad too, like how much I think those concepts like seep into like purity culture is in the sense of, oh, like it's my job to protect her innocence kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And also just how time and time again we see men celebrities just going for younger and younger women and Leonardo DiCaprio yeah Leo anyways so it's interesting and very sad how much yeah unfortunately there are so many parallels that I feel like we run into all the time I agree it's really messed up We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. All right. So to spice things up here in the middle of our episode, which is, I'm sure, great. We're going to do our artist spotlights. And today I'm actually going to shout out someone that I originally found by going through our followers because I figured in the journey of finding women artists, maybe we could find a woman artist that is listening. Hey, if my wildest dreams come true, you're just casually listening to this episode. But today I am shouting out, I think it's Clara or Clara Turney. Sorry if that's wrong, but it's C-L-A-R-A-T-O-U-R-N-A-Y. Her Instagram is Positive Madness as her Instagram, but she is an artist and makes very beautiful art, paintings, they're incredible and I love them. So just scrolling through. These are so I mean, cool. There's so many actually cool things. I don't, it's not even like just painting. I think her first language is French, which that's, I'm so sorry because I know how much we butcher that language on this episode. <laughs> I know. French people. <laughs> but it's incredible. All of the art that she does. She has a website that you can check out um, and seems to do. Yeah. How work. is she doing some of these? That's I don't know. I don't know how she does it. They it's look incredible. Like three dimensional, but they're not. Or are they? I don't know. I can't tell. I can't either. But these it are is incredible. so cool. So thanks for following and maybe listening to the podcast. And if you are looking for an awesome artist to follow, check out Clara. Cool. Okay. I also have a painter. Carrie Schmidt is her Mm -hmm. name and her username. She's an artist and she also is an author. She has, I think, two books is what I could find. There's the story of every flower and a story in a flower in her heart which is a picture book. And she just has these beautiful floral paintings that are like semi-abstract. There's like women hidden in them in some of them. (gasps) I I just saw one that's like Temple of Sisters and it's all these. Yes. I love this. And they're bright and gorgeous. Mm -hmm. They are bright and gorgeous. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I love flipping through this so much. I love following Instagram accounts like this because it's just refreshing. <laughs> it really it's is. Just, it's just so beautiful. She also has a bunch of mermaid ones, which I think is so fun. Like mm-hmm. we talked in our Barbie episode about how women are just constantly forced to give up their childhood obsessions. And lately I've been like, you know what? I was obsessed with mermaids. So I'm just going to let myself enjoy some mermaid art. I love that. Mermaids are awesome. So genuinely. They really are. It's such a weird concept if you think about it. That's existed for so long. But anyway, just fun. fun, I love it. All right. Now back to the show. We could keep going. I could like, we could do a whole episode on it, but I hate it. So I don't want to touch it again. So (laughs) I will take over (laughs) then. So I read The Virgin Suicides and I didn't actually really know anything about this kind of beyond 
the, like you mentioned, almost like the aesthetic that's associated with this book of just, I don't know, like the sad girl aesthetic. And I was very curious even too of like, how directly does it actually talk about virginity and like purity culture? And I will say it wasn't necessarily as on the nose in that sense that I thought it would be. But to briefly just summarize what it is about, it takes place in the 1990s in the suburbs of Michigan. I can't remember which specific one, but basically just like traditional suburb life. And maybe that's where I felt so particularly triggered by it. Yeah, I will say Um, this one is like the closest to probably our upbringing. Yeah. Obviously Mm -hmm. not this bad. Like our parents are not this insane. But like closer to what we experienced than the other two, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Even just in the very setting of 1990s modern like suburb being fantasized by other teenage boys, essentially. Yes. But it's about the five Lisbon sisters who, spoiler alert, throughout the novel at different moments all end up killing themselves starting at the beginning of the book with the daughter Cecilia 13 who was 13 years old and then a year later all four of them in some type of suicide pact kill themselves all together and like other key points of this is that the father he's a math teacher at the local high school and the mom is like a really strict homemaker they are a very firm strong catholic family and just to name out all of the daughters there's cecilia who's 13 lux who's 14 15 year old bonnie 16 year old mary and then 17 year old Teresa. so there's the five girls cecilia like i said at the very beginning of the novel attempts suicide and i think that's something that was so jarring and was just so immediately just like triggering about this book is it doesn't it's not a secret like at the very beginning this of this book it the narrators tell you like, oh yeah, and these five girls, they all kill themselves. And they're very graphic about the ways that they kill themselves. And with the first suicide, they're very graphic about it as well because like one of the boys is actually the one who finds her. And another thing I should know is the narrators of the book is almost like this chorus of the teenage boys viewing the girls. And now as adults, like coming back and trying to grapple with how they saw things, what they remember and like the ways it affected them and then also now realizing that even though they were so obsessed with these girls as teenagers and they like thought they had some type of connection to them they actually have no idea about anything about them and will never know why these actions ended up happening because once the first daughter commits suicide first there's an attempt that she survives and the psychologist tells the parents hey it's because she's not socializing enough as mentioned these parents are like portrayed as very strict who these girls don't even really have friends really outside of each other and anyways after that they decide to hold like a house party where they invite all the boys it's very like closely chaperoned and then at this party is where cecilia goes off and does it successfully and after that there's like different levels of this family mourning and there is a moment though where a boy comes over and begs to take lux out to the dance and says in order to do it i'll get three boys to ask the other three sisters so they can all be together but then lux misses her curfew and gets home late and is drunk and as a result to that the girls are basically shut off from the world They are homeschooled. I don't even know if they're actually taught anything, but they are brought home. The dad ends up losing his job because of the way he's behaving. And they just become so trapped in that house. Later, they end up like communicating with the boys, whether that's like signaling with lights, leaving notes in mailboxes, or like even at one point calling and playing music for each other then there is a moment where they ask the boys to come over to help them escape but then the night that they come over and escape the boys end up finding the girls or finding one of the girls and then the next day they realize that all the remaining four sisters took their life anyways it's really such a pleasant plot to even describe (laughs) i'm just like "Ah," it feels weird even like saying this out loud because it's so gruesome i think a lot of the themes that it does obviously touch on is like obviously suicide and what I find interesting is in the last like in the conclusion of the book which is the 
adult men like mourning what they've let go with becoming like men and adults and they put suicide they like talk oh it's such a selfish thing that they did and we'll never know why they did it and that's like the conclusion that the boys make Mm -hmm. and it is interesting I don't know this is obviously a touchy subject to talk on but it's interesting in the book and obviously I'm sure the author did this so purposefully is that you really don't know anything about these girls you only know how these girls are based off of the way that this like group of teenage boys perceives them yeah and how they view them and how these girls are like an object of their fantasy and also I think in a way like an object of their fantasy because one they're forbidden and two because I don't know maybe this is just my reading but it's almost like because they were so sad and so helpless that it like became something that even more they were like I want to be the one who can save her. I want to be the one who can save them. And I think that's like an interesting reaction that I do think mirrors a lot of reality. One thing I forgot to mention where at the beginning of the novel when Cecilia attempts and uh, she's getting carried out by the EMTs and uh, one of them pretty much says what even could be happening to her. She's so young, like she doesn't even know what life is and she tells the doctor like you've never been a 13 year old girl then and I found myself really resonating to that line of just you've never been a 16 year old girl and you don't know how like difficult it can be and even too in the novel it talks about the town's reaction and Mm -hmm. how obviously like they allowed this family just to be so completely isolated from the world and didn't really do a lot of intervening and it instead became something to gossip on about and to further shame them for, which I think is another side to it that I wanted to touch on where it's like people are willing, like they say that they're willing to talk about mental health and that they understand depression, but not the ugly side of it, where it's like, sure, can you call someone and say, I love you, I believe in you, you matter. That's one thing. But then like when you see depression and grieving and tragedy and how people respond to it, and maybe they're not immediately aspirational because we shouldn't, put that requirement always on people to be immediately aspirational in their tragedies and their trials like maybe there's an ugly side to it of them not leaving their home but they still need to be rescued even if it's not the glamorous pretty cider do you you get what I'm saying no I completely understand what you're saying yeah there is like this kind of and I think especially in the 90s this glamorization Mm -hmm. of mental health issues Like you're only allowed to show your mental health issues in one very specific way and it doesn't fit what people view that as and it's not aspirational as something that you're overcoming and then they like don't want to engage with it because you're like, I don't know, not responding the right way. Then it's not like Victorian romanticization anymore. It's like, yeah, it's it's real reality and no Mm -hmm. one likes that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What like, so I haven't read the book, but I saw the movie directed by Sofia Coppola. See, I haven't watched the movie. I was going to, and then after I read that book, I was like, no, I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. I will say from what you've described, I think the movie is a little easier on that part. It explains what happens, but I don't, I didn't find it nearly as triggering as I think, Mm -hmm. like it doesn't go into as much details, but it is narrated by the boys, which is really notable. And Yeah, like, I think what made me so irritated is that, like, the one boy, none of the boys are named, right? Yeah, no, it'll give the names of other boys in it, but not, they're not actually, like, the ones participating as the narrators. Okay, that's what I thought. So, Mm -hmm. the one boy, he's obsessed with Lux. He's the one who goes and begs her to go to the dance. Then Mm -hmm. they're, like, voted homecoming king and queen, and then he convinces her to stay out late with him, and he Mm -hmm. takes her virginity... Maybe. I guess we don't know if it's actually her virginity, though. But he, like, has sex with her in the football field and then leaves her there for her to find her own way home. And it's just, like, this interesting thing where, like, they overly romanticize and objectify these girls, but then he's not even willing to, like, he just discards her. Immediately after he gets what he wants. And And I think that, yes, because in the book it talked about that and told that story. And like it, when people like, what happened? I don't remember exactly, but he was just like, I don't know. I just got over her. Like I just got bored with her. Yeah. And and I just felt like that was, yeah. I don't know. It's horrifying. Mm -hmm. And then even they talk multiple times about how they see like Lux on the roof. with Having sex with other men. Yeah, Mm -hmm. having sex with other men. 
But then they still have this like weird obsession with her. I don't know. It's just so strange. I feel like it's the perfect example of that idea of, you know, the phrase like, you just love the idea of me. Yeah. That's really exactly. what it is. They are obsessed with the idea, like the fantasy of yeah, the Yeah, it's like sisters. a way of objectifying a girl that I think people think not as bad because it's like, oh, but I'm not having sex with him. Oh, I'm not doing this. But it's like you're still not viewing them as real people. Yeah. And yeah, and I think it can be even like it's just as damning. I found this article. It was from the introduction to the edition of The Virgin Suicides that I got by Emma Klein. So I appreciated that it was a woman <laughs> who was doing this. But... What I liked is like their relationship with the Lisbons was fundamentally a fantasy, but the intensity and scope of their feelings was real and perhaps more real than anything that followed. After the last Lisbon daughter dies, it's like a spell is broken. The adult world with its ordinary disappointment presses in. We were slowly carted, they tell us, into the melancholic remainder of our lives. And then it says this book is an elegy for how life passes through us, changes us, and we are subjects to its mysterious workings, but never given a narrative that satisfies. Which was an interesting theme of the book because at the end of the book like I wanted to know why and I think maybe like as a woman too like I was so desperate to know what was going on in these girls heads like I wanted to help them I wanted to know the reasons I wanted to like almost relate to these characters but I wasn't given that window and when the book ended and I just had no idea why that I was like there was no note left there was nothing Mm -hmm. like it I was like oh that was such a waste of a book but then I realized like, no that was the point of the book is that they're never gonna know and now the audience never is either but like it's because that's like almost like what it wasn't about in a way yeah it's really interesting I even think after watching the movie I found like a reddit thread that was like why did the lesbian sisters actually commit suicide mm-hmm. and there were so many ideas like oh their father was abusing them their mother was like physically like all these things and it's but that's not really the point the point is that the boys are looking at them as something that they have no responsibility to be like Mm -hmm. (laughs) they should no girl needs to be like the ideation of someone's fantasies that's ridiculous Mm -hmm. like they're people who had real problems and who needed real help and needed real help exactly so yeah i thought there was a lot of interesting themes about the virgin suicides and yeah again i actually to be fair like the writing was beautiful like he's Mm -hmm. a good author and i think the point came across very well but but yeah i found it very personally triggering (laughs) sorry (laughs) it's okay i knew what i was getting myself into when we decided for this topic but also too i think it's just the danger of it's like putting women it's i don't know People like talk about, like, oh, like, we put women on a pedestal and say that's a good thing. But there's so much danger in saying that because it makes women not people in a yeah. way, too. Like, it doesn't make them your equal that you expect the same thing from. And I think that's, like, an important thing to remember. Yeah. No, and yeah. I think the thing that kind of ties all of this together is, like, not only the purity culture aspects of all of it and, like, obsession with women's virginity, but just, like over sexualization of women in general like even seeing Mm -hmm. how these novels have been so misinterpreted like even we didn't talk about it a ton but the scarlet letter version with demi moore in it she has like a full nude scene like why is that Mm -hmm. necessary in a puritanical society like that's just Mm -hmm. not necessary and same with lolita i will say i think the movie does really well but it was the screenplay was written by and it was directed by a woman. So I feel like she got She's the well, yeah. <laughs> Bless Sofia Coppola. I love her. But even just some other things I've seen lately, there was that documentary that came out about Brooke Shields called Pretty Baby. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how she was like so sexualized from a really young age in Hollywood. And they had her doing like nude scenes at like age 12 in movies, which is just ridiculous. Or I even thought about tv shows that they consistently and constantly push like the age gap or student teacher romances Mm -hmm. which in a way is such a weird thing especially for shows aimed at kids like i think of pretty little liars how so many people were so obsessed with Arya and ezra when it's that's not a good relationship that's bad (laughs) no i've seen that where it's like the older i get the more i'm on the like 
the parents' side about that. Yeah. <laughs> and then even in Riverside, they did it with Archie and like his teacher. And it's just like a weird fascination that they have with putting that in. Mm-hmm. I even thought about the fact. So runway models are traditionally ages 16 to 24, which means mm-hmm. that most of the women we see in fashion don't look like adult women. And yet yeah. they're portraying them. There's a lot of the red pill, right wing conservative sphere that constantly talk about how like your value decreases as a woman once you lose your virginity and as you age. So mm-hmm. once you're the age of 25 and you're not a virgin anymore, like you're no longer valuable. Yeah. Which is a horrible yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't even need to get into how damaging that is. But then also just like the fact that we have adults constantly playing teenagers on television and how that can give teenagers unrealistic expectations of how they're supposed to act and look and participate. Like Euphoria, yeah. for example. <laughs> like, kids don't need to be anything other than children. And yeah. that's what you're supposed to do at that age. Like, you're not supposed to care so much. And I feel like we've created a society where we are so obsessed with, like, youth and sexuality and chastity and all of the above that we're, like, forcing people to grow up faster than they need to and then getting mad at them for it. Yeah. And it's just, like, a weird thing that we continue to push and that I think we all need to be more aware of. Yeah, I very much agree with you. Thank you for that. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Before we completely break, I wanted to find a positive note to end on, a more positive at least. I have found an article with the top 10 female sexual awakenings in literatures. I made sure these are written by women. And actually, I I don't necessarily won't read all 10, Mm -hmm. but just to note a couple. So the first one that I actually saw on a lot of lists about women's sexuality is The Edible Woman by Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood also wrote The Handsmaid's Tale, which I think is another really great kind of like the woman's side of this kind of focus. Another book is, oh wait, where'd it go? The Fear of Flying by Erica Jong that was mentioned. Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterston. How Should a Woman Be by Sheila Hetty. And The Country Girls by Edna, Edna O'Brien. Um, Kinflix by Lisa Alther. What Purpose Did I Serve in Your Life by Marie Calloway. So if any of those things popped out, authors or titles, I would recommend you go check it out so that you can I don't know, hear about women's sexuality from a different side. Oh, another one was The Woman Destroyed by Simone de Boire, Baby Teeth by Zodi Stage. There's a couple in there. that, And also there's plenty of nonfiction books about unlearning purity culture. But Agreed. if we just want to like talk about fiction literature, there's also plenty that exists out there that are written by women. So check it out. Agreed. Hopefully this episode isn't too much of a yeah. downer. <laughs> I know. Um, It's hard sometimes when we feel really moved to like talk about really important topics, but we know it's not going to be nearly as fun as some of our other ones. Very true. But hey, also important to talk about. And if anything, like it hopefully will allow you to interact with these books in a different way. Yeah, totally. So. No more romanticizing Lolita. There was a moment when I think it was Madison Beer was being interviewed and they asked, what's your favorite book? And she said Lolita. And everyone was like, you don't know what that means. And that's okay. She was really young. I'm not here to shame a woman, but like, you don't know what that means. No. So no more people saying that it is their favorite book as an aesthetic choice. Because no. And stop we want. putting it on like aesthetic TikTok videos of like your summer reading list. for like, just, yeah. It's not... I think it maybe it's like a good thing to like at least understand or read at least once in your life. Yeah, this is it. Maybe it's one of those things you read once, but like it. I don't know. Just don't do it for the aesthetic. It's, no, yeah, we don't need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I didn't even get into. Maybe I'll put this on like the Instagram, but like the cover of the books of Lolita oh, and yeah. how they are so messed up and like cover designers do not know what they're doing with them because it's so bad. But, True. Yeah. So it's just, it's not the kind of book to romanticize. And I would even say the same about The Virgin Suicides. I feel like if you're well, romanticizing that's what, it's like, it. It's very heavy. And, and it's and the point of the book is like the f- way that the boys are like fantasizing these women. It's not about the girls at all. Yeah. It is, but that's yeah. not the point. No, it's about the boys' perspective of them. Let's all go watch Easy A. 
<laughs> palette cleanser easy a <laughs> such a good one definitely the lightest form of media that we talked yes. about in this that still gets the message across and it's so fun I love that <laughs> yes movie. and it ends good and <laughs> definitely happy. And luckily, we will be back for an episode that will be hopefully much lighter as we talk about a female artist next week and start September. Yeah. Last week's episode also is pretty light and fun talking about background singers. And even at the end of last week's episode, we talked about how it was nice to have a story that didn't end sad. That was just uplifting and good. So, (laughs) hey, go check out last week's episode. It was one of my favorite ones I've covered in a while. However, if you are looking for a companion of this one that talks more about league movies and how men and women are viewed within them, we would recommend our June episode of Male versus Female Gaze. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend that. And we've got more coming. I promise not all of them are this depressing or this serious. Every week we're just unpacking all of our internalized misogyny and looking at art and women from our little feminist lens. So love it. Doing our best. (laughs) Doing our best. Join us next week.